Uh, okay. I'm, I'm just going to launch into this and then we might need to do it again. But <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Okay. Hey, this is Chris Daly from Disruptive Advertising, and I'm excited to be here with you guys today with Jeff Smith on Vroom Vroom Beer. That was perfect. We don't need to do that again. That's great. Cool. Thank you. Cool. All right. Um, now, I'm going to go away, and when I hit stop on the recorder, you won't hear me for a beat or two, and then I'll be right back. Cool. See ya. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. so much for being on Vroom Vroom Veer and welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome and uh, thanks and welcome. So you are Elliot Wagenheim and uh, your website is wagenheim.com. So talk a little bit about what you're excited most about in your business today. Well, I've been a business lawyer for 30 years, 30 wow. years this year. I know. Congratulations. And, <laughs> well, uh, you know, I appreciate the spirit in which that's offered. But I will tell you this. Nobody, to my knowledge, you know, as a nine-year-old kid, ten-year-old kid, dresses up on Halloween as their favorite character, the business lawyer. Right? <laughs> it's not something that, that people are saying, please, dear God, if you grant me one wish, make me a business lawyer. Uh, maybe but, not. Maybe. I don't know. That I wouldn't want to hang out with that kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't, right? Right, um, right. Halloween's like a three-piece suit and that sort of thing. Right. But um, but I, what I really love about it, and it's taken me a while to sculpt my career into the things that I really enjoy. I, I do like working with small to mid-sized businesses and guiding them, and and I love speaking. I love public speaking and and keynotes and doing workshops and and writing. And so I'm getting to do more of that. So that's really exciting to me, and I. It took me a long time to separate what my job was from what my passion is. But I think I've, at the tender age of 53, I think I finally figured that out. That's nice. See? But, you know, that's awesome because we're always learning, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that if you stop learning, you just might as well, you know, go into a rest home somewhere. Yeah. You know, and I've said this more than once to people. I'll let you know what I want to be when I grow up after I grow up. Yeah, you know, the, <laughs> Paula Poundstone once said that the reason that adults ask kids what they want to be when they grow up is not because they're interested. It's because they're looking for ideas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I remember that joke. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. It is. Oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I should yeah. do that. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, I was just talking to my parents. My dad uh, just turned 79 and my mom's getting ready to turn 78. And I'm I'm explaining to them, you know, because uh, um, you know they have my genes, so I'm interested in their health and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, you know, it's like their version, you know, whatever rev that that my biology has. That's them, right? So that they made it this far, I keep telling them that that's encouraging, you know, because so many people their age haven't made it. 
as far as them. And that gives them way better odds to keep going. Right. It is encouraging, but it's right. only encouraging if you, if you find something that you love, it's if true. you're not just, if you're not just, you know, waiting out the clock. Right. Right. And so that no, goes yeah, back to your point true. about you keep learning, you keep doing, you find things right. to be excited about. Right. And then hell, that's when you really want it to be 80, 85, right. 90, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. It's like if you get to a certain age and you just sort of quit, that's sort of like, it's almost like, okay, fine. <laughs> right. I hate to be just marking time somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's sort of, uh, I, I always caveat when I talk to my parents like that. I said, if you're still having fun, you should think about living longer because it's only going to get, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Good you know, if you're still having fun, if you're not having fun, then, you know, all right, well take what's next, you know, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> whatever, you know, pick the door. Right. Okay. So this is room, room beer. So we have to go back in time and talk about Elliot um, when he was uh, say like, younger uh like what was your childhood like where did you grow up i grew up in uh baltimore maryland baltimore and, maryland uh, Ooh, okay on a suburb of baltimore maryland middle class i had uh the kind of childhood that that um, they made black and white tv shows about you know okay i mean like leave it to be I had, <laughs> yeah i had a lot of friends in the neighborhood i'd uh, go outside to um to play we'd come in when uh you know, when mom calls everybody in for dinner and it starts to get dark so you can't see the ball, um, right. you know, drank from, drank from the hose, you know, the whole, <laughs> yeah. the whole nine yards. That was the Gen Xer uh, experience as childhood, right? So yeah, it your, was Your parents kind of kick you out of the house in the morning and then you come home, you know, maybe check in at lunch and then be home before dark for dinner. Yeah, that was, that was all summer. You know, and that's, right, that was all summer. Correct. That's just the way it was. And um, different world I, that we grew sometimes up in. I wish that, um, well, geez, I wish I could tell you about some horrible thing in childhood because it would make me much more interesting. But but my <laughs> my early childhood was not my early childhood was wonderful. Pretty neat. But, huh? Yeah. But the um, and it, upper middle class, the whole nine yards. But um, in this neighborhood where I will tell you, I did not meet knowingly meet my first non-Jewish person until I was 10. Um, wow. You know, I, so yeah. it was, it was as idyllic a background as you can imagine. And so, um, the next thing that I'll tell you is that when I was 12 years old, I was stabbed in a knife fight. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? You might, did that happen no, in, your, so, in your nice it, it, upper middle class it, neighborhood? Yeah, and it taught me two lessons that carried me through life and my career. Um, it was just a stupid thing. It was, um, uh, I think I asked out the wrong girl to some sweetheart dance in middle school and uh, was at the bus stop and a classmate pulled a knife and I never saw it. Wow. And so... And, and it was, I got stabbed twice, once on the left side, up through the spleen, um, and the other on the left side behind the shoulder, through the muscle, and down to the lung. Oh, my God. And You're lucky to I, be alive. And so, well, what happened was I, my parents both worked outside of the house, and I found myself at the, um, at the hospital. I went into shock, and I was in surgery by the time they got to the hospital. 
And the first person that met them at the hospital was a police officer who identified himself as being from homicide. Oh, geez. So, and you would think, Jeff, you would think that being stabbed in middle school was the most traumatic thing that could happen right. to a 12-year-old. Yeah. But it wasn't. Okay. Because you see, everybody identifies with being a certain person, you know, and I wasn't the jock in high school and I didn't play band and I didn't have a great voice and I wasn't, um, you know, the, the, the real popular kid. I had my friends, but I wasn't the real popular kid. I was just there, but, but I was smart and I was in. The, the, what today would be the gifted and talented programs was in the highest classes. I was smart. And that's how I self-identified. Mm, and okay. when I spent, you know, two weeks in intensive care and I come back and it was going to be uh, over a month at home before I could even get out of bed and walk again. And I was told by my parents who had a conference with the doctors and the administrators that I would have to repeat seventh grade. And that, was the most traumatic thing that I could imagine to be left back. Ah, um, it, that would suck. <laughs> Especially, yeah. yeah, for, for kids that age, that, that just means yeah. that you're not smart basically. Yeah. Yeah. It, it took away everything. Right. So, and I would have, I, I would have been left back and except here's the, the two things that I came away from it with. The first, the first lesson was taught to me by, uh, a classmate of mine named David Kurlander. We were friends, meaning I wouldn't have called him my best friend, and I'm sure he probably wouldn't have called me his, but but if there were a game of Dungeons and Dragons somewhere and there were six to eight people, we probably both would have been at the table. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you were you were you had nerdiness in common. I did. Yeah. Um, Good. But anyway, so David, for reasons that escaped me then and still do, every day decided to go to every single one of my teachers and collect my homework and a printout of their lesson plans. And he would ride his bike over to my house Yeah, and he would drop it off. And I would watch this pile grow on a desk opposite my bed before I even was strong enough to walk over and look at it. But eventually I was, and I started to do this work. And then every day in the morning he would come by and he would pick up the homework and he would distribute it to my teachers. And if it was raining, he, he got wet. And if it was cold, <laughs> he got cold. Yeah. And that's what he did wow. every single day. Amazing. And How long did this go on? Like the- This went on for over a month. Yeesh. Wow. And, um, and from David, I learned uh, one lesson, which is the, the combination of empathy and compassion. Because uh, they're two different things. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, then the second the second uh, lesson I learned was from a guy who was my science teacher in seventh grade, and his name was Mr. Sanders, and I don't even know his first name. Still don't. His first and name I, was Mister. <laughs> and like he he didn't have much of a sense of humor. Okay. And he was way too into science for me, but you know, but he started coming over to the house in this beater of a Volkswagen and he would take this big case out of his car and he would come in and from his case, he would take out this little gas tank and then beakers and Bunsen burners and 
flasks and minerals and whatever. And wow. he would recreate every single lab we did in the powder room next to our kitchen. Wow. And it was just me and him side by side. And he didn't have to do that. No. He was a public school teacher. Nobody asked him to do that. He didn't get paid to do that. He didn't get paid to do that. No. And the reason he did it was not because I was his favorite student. Because you were. Be- <laughs> <laughs> no. It was because I was a student. And what Mr. Sanders taught me was the difference between having a job and having a calling. Mm, he right. had a call. Um, so yeah, so that's in growing up, those were the two lessons I learned from something that would have been the most traumatic thing that you could imagine. Wow. Wow. That, that's amazing. That like, I mean, for somebody so young to have something so traumatic shape your life and, in such a, a, a meaningful way, most pit kids get through childhood just from the sample of people on this show, there's very few highlights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? You know, there's not. You know, we t- we very briefly talk about, you know, oh, what was your childhood like? Oh, it was like this. Oh, okay. But this is the, you had like life-changing events at, at, you know, age 12. Yeah, it took me a while to figure them out, to really learn from them. And, right. You know, as opposed to imagine. something to forget about, to really right. focus on it. But yeah. Wow. So, okay, so you, you don't end up being held back because no. you put in the effort and then uh, people also supported you in amazing ways. That's, that's pretty yeah. amazing. Um, so, okay, so now you said you, had, you brought up Dungeons and & Dragons, and uh, I, have to, I have to admit something, that I was, I was a, a Dungeons & Dragons geek as a kid, <laughs> too. Uh, and that, that carried with me... Uh, into being in an Air Force adult, too, you know, like, really? Uh, oh, yeah, wow. for a while. Um, <laughs> I ran into, I can't remember where I was, but, oh, yeah, I was in Florida. So time frame was somewhere between 97 and 2000. I was stationed at uh, Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City, Florida. Mm-hmm. And I ran into some guys, and they were playing. And I was like, wow, I haven't played in forever. I couldn't even remember last time I played. But I had a really good, oh yeah, that's right. My assignment before Florida, I had a really good group of really fun people to play with that were, you know, like my kind of players um, as grownups, you know, a lot more beer talk (laughs) than nerdiness, you know, because we had grown up quite a bit. Um, So, you know, we weren't really all that uh, hard over on rules. It was more about, you know, occasionally rolling dice, definitely drinking beer and having a good time, you know, and um and then this guy in Florida was your, uh, he just didn't like me, right? So he, I, ro- I spend an hour or so rolling up a character. I'm the new guy in this group, and he immediately kills me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you've invested in it by this point. Well, yeah. Well, you know, I'm hanging out for an hour. So I think, you know, his, his thing was he, he wanted me to leave because he didn't like me. So instead of that, I, I, I stayed around and got like really loud and really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll show him. <laughs> I wasn't invited back. So anyway, that was, that was probably the last time I played D and D I think maybe, but anyway, yeah, it's a good time. Good, good fun. It was, I watched some, there's some, uh, YouTube shows now of D and D that, uh, when I watch, I'm like, man, I'd love to play that again. That's, that's a good I, Yeah. I think it's online. I think you can play online now. You can play online. Uh, there, there's people that, that like will play and record like three yeah. hour sessions. 
So they they broadcast them live. Well, broadcast the wrong word. They stream them live, uh, and then and then they take the recordings and put those recordings on YouTube. And yeah, I think they do it over like Twitch. Yes, exactly. Twitch yeah. is the is the live thing. And uh, yeah. Yeah, there's this one show called Critical Role that I really love. Um, it's I very rarely get to watch all three hours, but what I do watch, it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty cool, you know. Anyway, it's cool. Yeah. So okay. So now you are um, you're the nerdy D and D guy, and uh, and you make it. What was what was high school like? If if there was any more uh, notable stories. No. So I um, so my parents pulled me out of the uh, public school where I went okay, uh, because of that. And In so response I, to the stabbing, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I went to a, um, Gil, uh, Baltimore has a very well established private school culture. Okay. Uh, a lot of cities don't for some reason, Baltimore does, and it has some of the best private schools in the country. So I went to, from public school, I went to a private school called Gilman, uh, which is one of the premier um, prep schools in the country. Mm, okay, it's routinely on all these guides or whatever, and it's an all boys school. Ah, oh, and I was not used to an all boys school. Right, that's less fun. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, to this day, Gilman served me very well. You know, it, it really course. did. It was a fabulous education. I had some terrific, terrific teachers, but um, I still. I don't agree with the single sex education. Uh, now I understand that, that Gilman has so much partnership with the girls' schools that are nearby that most classes are co-ed. But, but um, it was interesting to me to see the difference between a co-ed and a, and a single sex education. But so that was my high school. It was it was Gilman. It was a, an emphasis on academics and athletics, and you know it, it, they prepared me very well. Yeah. So when did you decide that you were going to go uh, become a lawyer? Did you do that? Did you figure that out early or did you figure that out later on, like in college? It was it was pretty early because here's the thing. When when I went to school and, you know, I know this makes me sound old because I am. There wasn't any Internet. Right. right? There was I remember there wasn't a way to. Well, let's go online. Let's let's do this app and enter your skills and your interests and what you love and what you hate. And then we'll tell you that, you know, you'd be really you'd be really great as a tour guide in northern New Mexico or as a salmon fisherman or as a bridge builder <laughs> over here. It, it's a delivery it, man. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't. There wasn't anything like that. And so I knew of basically four professions because I came out of this all Jewish neighborhood. I knew of four professions. I knew doctor. I knew lawyer. I knew accountant and I knew rabbi. Right. Okay. So I'm not really all that religious. The rabbi was out. Right. And I learned that I didn't have much of a science aptitude. So doctor was out and I didn't want to be an accountant. So my that dad only, was a that lawyer. only really left lawyer. Huh? It pretty much did. And my dad was a lawyer <laughs> and I knew this about law. I knew that I did like public speaking. I like communication and I was a good writer. Hmm. And those are skills which are central to being a lawyer. Right. So I just went through the school. You know, I, I majored in political science. And you only major in political science for one of two reasons. One is if you're going to teach political science. And the other is if you're going to be pre-law and it doesn't really matter what you major in. Right, right. Uh, they probably so, didn't have pre-law back then. 
Yeah, no, they did. They just had political science, minored in history, went to law school. So it was a pretty straight shot. Um, didn't think about it all that much. But I will tell you this. When I was in first year of law school at the University of Maryland, my mother was in second year of law school at University of Maryland, and oh, my wow. sister was in third year of law school at University of wow. Maryland. Wow. So you had a family of lawyers. I did. So yeah. your your dad, your mom, and your sister. Correct. Wow. Man, that would that would make uh, uh, family arguments very interesting. It would, and I will tell you this, <laughs> just a bit of advice for any listeners who may, by coincidence, find themselves in the same situation. Never take an ethics class with your mom. <laughs> just you don't want to do You're, that. Yeah, that's a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose. Because <laughs> you really just can't win. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're not, even if you argue the best kind of, sort of case, you're risking, you know, so much loss. Yeah, you yeah. just don't want to do that. You just don't want to do that. Wow. Holy cow. All right. So so talk a little bit about what your law school experience was like. I mean, uh, did, did you enjoy it? Was it fun? Did you do no. uh, some really cool internships? No, law school was, um, law school was a very small and catty atmosphere. For me, it was much worse than high school. I mean, it was very competitive. Right. Okay. Uh, it, it was, um, you know, a little bit cutthroat and, that, and that's fine, but it, um, it definitely was not fun. The thing about law school that a lot of people don't know is that your final exam is a hundred percent of your grade. Whoa, so it's, wow. it's not, uh, quizzes during the semester. It's not, um, participation. It's not a group project. You have one exam and it's a hundred percent of your grade. Yeesh. Um, so no pressure, you know, no pressure. There's an advantage <laughs> to that because if you know that the the professor teaches according to the textbook, as I did in one of my uh, one of my classes, I never went to class. I had, as a matter of fact, I scheduled a racquetball game during the class time because mm. I never went. I had the book, I would study the book, and I would take the final. Right, save some time. Yeah, but um, but yeah, law school was was a, just a small caddy environment, mm. um, but. You know, it it prepared you if you know the if you learn how to think like a lawyer. Right, you know the right, critical right. Uh, the critical assessment, and I um and I did. And so during law school, I um I started um, what was uh, the first legal temporary service on the East Coast, um, and by that I mean you've got um, sm- small law firms. Right. That might have a big case come in and they might need more lawyers, but they don't want to hire permanent employees because if the case settles or it, oh, it resolves okay. a trial, right. they're going to have to fire people. Mm. So, Hired guns, so to speak. Yeah. So I started a temp agency that was just where the temps were just lawyers and law students, law clerks. Oh, okay. Right. Um, so that was a, a formative experience and it, it paid for a good part of my law school. Nice. <laughs> so you had some some inklings that you wanted to be a entrepreneur as well. Yeah, I did. I um, I I had always loved to be an entrepreneur. I um, I started a company in high school, um, oh, wow. which was selling ethnic T-shirts. <laughs> Meaning, and, and now as a lawyer, I know that they were blatant trademark infringements. Right. Um, but for example, I would have the Superman logo and, and in Greek instead of in, in English, it would say Superman or in Hebrew it would say Superman and, and I would sell Uber those. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Superman. 
Superman. Um, I should have done that. That would have been a better one. Um, but uh, I would sell those at ethnic festivals in Baltimore. And um, and then in college, uh, see how old you are if you remember this. I used to sell. Um, I started out selling cassette tapes. I remember cassette tapes. TDK, Maxell, BASF. I started selling cassette tapes on the quad and then I realized I wasn't making as much of a profit because I tried to go direct to the manufacturer, TDK, Maxell, BASF, etc. But they wouldn't ship to me because I didn't order enough quantity. Interesting. So I went to the small record and stereo stores around, I went to Duke, so I went to uh, small record and stereo stores around um, Durham, North Carolina and I got orders from them telling them I could beat their cost. And so I put together what now I know to be a buying group. And with those, I got enough quantity to go direct to the manufacturer. So that's how I paid college. Wow. So what, what, what were you doing? What were you putting on the cassette tapes? Like super awesome mixes or something? No, they were blank. Oh, you were just selling blank cassette tapes because yeah, everybody was, everybody was awesome making mix. their super awesome mixes. <laughs> you, yeah. you were just selling them blank tapes. Wow. And then I would sell a car stereo or, or yeah. speakers for a dorm room or if somebody needed it. But most of it was just blank cassette tapes. People would buy them by, you know, they'd buy a dozen, they'd buy 10, mm. they'd buy whatever it is. Yeah. That was back when you, uh, the, the big skill was recording your favorite song perfectly off the radio, right? I know, and, and right. he hated <laughs> when the DJ would have the promo that bleeds into the opening chords. They would of the song. always just, ruin them. Yeah, yeah they walk over talking. the the whole intro. They talk over and tell the very first song a uh, word of the song. They would yeah. just trample the whole intro, and no, they would usually that. cut off the outro too. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they would. So you're right. It was a skill and a rare find to be able yes. to take a video. To make an awesome mixtape was yes. yeah. And then you would you would like keep them and be like, okay, it's getting better. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's right. Yeah, actually, I I think at one point had a boombox that had um, two cassette recorders in built in, so you could. Oh dub. yeah. Yeah, so that way you could you could actually you know eh, you know the the resulting mixtape was you know a copy of a copy, so it sounded a little bit crappy, but <laughs> it was already crappy. It came off the radio. <laughs> yeah. All right. So moving on, we digress. Okay. So all right. So you finished law school. Uh, what's what's your first gig after law school? I had made a deal with my dad. My dad was a sole practitioner in Anne Arundel County, which which is the outskirts of Annapolis. Okay. And what that meant is he was the lawyer equivalent of a country doctor, right? He would take care of whatever would come in, um, adoptions, wills, guardianship, or a, an automobile accident, a petty criminal thing, a small business, whatever came in. Right. Okay. Um, and my dad was a really good lawyer, but but he was not a great businessman. He um, didn't really keep great records. He was confronted when I graduated from law school, which is 1987. He was confronted with the beginnings of the personal computing age mm. um, and fax machines and where technology offered the possibility for a small business to match or at least compete with the output of a large business if you did it right, right. but it also offered the specter of being completely buried if you didn't keep up. Wow, yeah. So he 
he asked me, you know, when you come out of law school, can you just take over the practice? And so I did, but I told him that I would only do it for three years because it wasn't the kind of work that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I wanted to help my dad. Sure. So I, um, I did it for three years. I put him on payroll. I had to manage the accounts and the debts and the tax issues and build a firm and computerize. And, and uh, you know, and so I did that. I did that for three years. And then I moved to a, um, a business law firm in Baltimore. Oh, okay. So you kind of set him up for success. Did he keep working after you moved on? Yeah, he kept working until yeah. he passed away in 2007. Yeah. Oh, wow. Nice. Nice. But at least he got computerized. He did. He got computerized. We, yeah. He was sending out bills. He, um, I remember my first argument with him about, because I, I spent uh, more money than he thought was justified on a fax machine. And he said, he said, Elliot, don't you understand the only way a fax machine is going to be useful is if someone else buys a fax machine. <laughs> it's like, yes, that's correct. That's the whole, that's what I'm betting on. Other people will buy fax machines. Yeah. That's what I'm betting. It's so weird because they're gone now. <laughs> no, they are. They're completely gone. They are. It's so funny. But, uh, but, that but they were funny. huge. They were, they were huge. I mean, oh, in yeah. their day, that saved so much time. Oh, oh it was magic, too. It you know, was, I, I remember was. sitting at my office one time on this fax machine my dad didn't want me to buy. And this um, this law firm that was on the other side of the case, it kept sending over. It, there was like this two-page thing it was trying to send. Me. So it sent it over. I was like, I got it. It got it off the fax machine. And then the fax rings again, and the same two pages come across. I'm like, okay. And then What's it rings again. <laughs> and the same two pages. And it did this. Ten times, I called the lawyer. It was from a big firm. I called the lawyer. I go, what are you doing? you got to stop. Why are you sending me the same things? You've sent it to me you know, eight times now, and the fax machine is ringing again. So he goes out to his secretary, and I wait, and he comes back. He goes, you want to know what happened? She kept putting the papers in the fax machine and expecting them to disappear when they went to you. <laughs> but they didn't disappear. They would just come out the other side of the fax, so she figured it didn't go through. So she would put it through again. Wow. Yeah. That's like uh, uh, succeeding in a, in a weird way, right? Wow. I know. It's wow. magic. <laughs> it's magic. It's totally yeah. magic. Wow. Yeah. You know, and you probably... Now, I had a similar experience where unbeknownst to me... So uh, just a little background. I was like a computer nerd, too. So mm-hmm. by the time I got to the Air Force and I got to my first Air Force base in 1988, so right as you're finishing law school, I guess, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I had, you know, played with computers since I was like in middle school, right? So mm-hmm. when I showed up to my first base, there was like this, uh, it was like an IBM XT clone, right? Oh, yeah. And it yeah. was in the back next to the printer for the Wang word processing system that everybody was using to print their letters, right? And this thing was off, and there was a dot matrix printer next to it. And I, and I asked everybody, I was like, what's up with that other PC over there? And they're like, oh, I don't know. That's some, the finance guy plugged that in, and he doesn't know how to work it. <laughs> and I was like, uh, can I play with it? And they were like, I don't know. Let's ask him. And he said, yeah, go ahead. We don't know what the hell it's for. So so I, I 
turn it on and I found a word processor and I printed a letter and they, they thought I was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the guy that ran the shop for computers uh, said, where'd you learn about computers? I was like, in school. And I meant high school, right? <laughs> right. And he assumed I, meant I had gone to college oh. and got a comp sci degree. I never said that. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but then he lobbied so hard and that's uh, that's how I got to end up working in the com computer shop. So that was awesome. That was that's awesome. so cool. Yeah. yeah. And they had like uh man, it was like a like a man, it was I remember the numbers. It was like a mainframe or a mini, but it oh. was like a, a I want to say Unisys 9040. And, okay. and it was like one of these things where there was dumb terminals all over the operations floor. Uh-huh. And, and then they had these gigantic disks that were like stacks. And it took like two dudes to, <laughs> to change them out. I was like, wow. It was just, man, it's like, you know, the old school computer. Well, you know, when I was in high school, um, we had a computer course, but the computer didn't have a keyboard. Right. It, it was a wall unit and we had these cards oh, that wow. we had to color in the circles, you know, yeah. um, and then you had this, you wound up, if you wanted to code anything, you had this basically a deck and it would feed through the computer and the computer would print out and you could see where your error was. Oh my goodness. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had uh, an IBM system 36 mini computer when I was oh, in sure. school and, uh, and that was all, you know, it was like a big box, you know, with a, with a, I think it was an eight inch floppy drive and then mm-hmm. like, you know, a bunch of dumb terminals. Um, this was all kind of like those were going, they, they, those were the dinosaurs that were dying. And then the, the PC, IBM PC clones were taking over. Yeah. The PC <laughs> clones and the PCs had the five and a five, five and, and a quarter. Five, five and a quarter. quarter. Yeah. Yes. Five and a quarter. And then Mac had three and a half. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and because of security weirdness, um, we used, do you remember the zip disks that you could get like a uh, hundred gigabytes or a hundred megabytes? I think it was a hundred megabytes on one disk. And that was a lot because a, a typical, uh, what was it? The three and a, three and a half inch disk was only like 1.4 meg. Right, yeah. so 100 meg yes. was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot because my first computer—well, yeah. not my first one, but one of the computers that I had in the 90s—and um, it wasn't my first one—but it had a hard drive that was two gigabytes, and, and that was a lot. I remember getting it, and they're like, "That's more than you're ever going to need." You're never going to use two gigabytes. Never going <laughs> to use two gigabytes. Now we all have two terabytes, and we're thinking, "Well, I need more." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> And we digress yet again. Okay, so you get your dad, and he's all set up and computerized, and now um, you move on and you start you working for a law firm now at this point, right? Yeah, I worked um, for uh, six years for a law firm that was doing business and and uh, litigation, okay. and um, and I learned I learned construction litigation, which is different from general litigation because construction has its own language. Mm. And the way I learned that was because um, the firm that I was with had a really large client, 
that was a construction company. And the only reason they were the client was because the president of the construction company was best friends with the managing partner. Okay. But the managing partner just did transactional, meaning contracts and stuff, didn't like litigation, didn't know anything about litigation. Uh, but the construction company needed a litigator. And so the the president of the company, you know, asked to see me. So I, I went out and I saw the president of this construction company. And I learned later that the president had a conversation with the managing partner. And it went something like this. He said, look, Elliot doesn't know a damn thing about construction law, which was true. I knew nothing about construction law. <laughs> Is that what they were looking for? <laughs> yeah, that's what they were looking for. Okay. They said, but um, we like him. And so here's what we'll do. We will teach Elliot everything he needs to know about construction law. Except with the catch that you can send us a bill for his time, but we're only going to pay what we think an experienced construction lawyer would have taken for this. And if we mark something down, it's solely our discretion. You don't get to question it. And at the end of this period, which turned out to be several years, mm. he'll know more than than just about anybody in construction law, but we're not going to pay for the learning curve. We're just going to pay for what an experienced construction lawyer would have. And so the managing partner said, okay. And so I did. I learned a lot about construction law, and that's how it happened. So, I mean, I'd imagine it's different because, what, because of, of all the government loopholes and, you know, all that? Well, some of it is. Some of it's lots of regulation right. kind of stuff. Government regulation. Right. But a lot of it is just the way that that buildings and houses are pulled out of the ground. There's a different set of standard contracts. There's different terminology from change orders and punch lists and back charges and pay when paid. And there's different expectations as far as what constitutes an acceptable term, like an indemnification or, or what have you, and what constitutes something that's really not seen. And, and so there's a whole different world, just like you have to be fluent in the world of estates and trusts if you're mm, going to mm, make a practice of right, doing right. people's wills, you know. Um, and there's a, another thing that you have to be fluent in if you want to do adoptions or immigration or, you know, tax work or securities. Every every niche has its own language and its own set of expectations. Wow. Okay. And its own risks and its own uh, rewards. Okay. And so construction is no different from that. You just have to know what it is and you have to become fluent in that particular language. Right. And that takes a lot of time and a lot it of... It takes a lot of time. Right. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when you have a recent college graduate and they want to come out and they like marketing. If they just want to come out and they interview and they say, hey, I love marketing, I like communications, I'm a people person, et cetera, they're one of a, a million right. people. That, right. But if they've, if they've made it their business to become familiar with one specific aspect. So I like marketing, I'm a people person, I like communication, but I am an absolute guru when it comes to uh, arranging paid Facebook advertising campaigns. Mm, right, right, right. Whatever, then you separate yourself because you know this particular language. You can talk about conversions and pixels and all the other stuff that Facebook does. Right. And at least you separate yourself. And the same is true with most other professions. 
Um, there's generally, if, if you can speak the language of your best clients yeah. and solve right, right. their problems in a way that they recognize themselves in what you see in the industry, mm. you make yourself infinitely more valuable. Yeah, no, I get that. That makes sense. It's like, uh, as an I, so I spent a lot of time doing a lot of different things when I was in the Air Force, but I, I primarily got locked into the IT niche, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. whenever I now do like um, an interview for a new job, I've been doing a lot of temporary gigs, mm-hmm. and uh, and I know right away if I'm talking to a non-IT person. Right, of course you do. Because they don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So the first time that I did an interview, it was like to do this thing that I had done a gajillion times, but somewhere else. They were doing like a... Um, replacing all the computers at uh, LAX. And there was like 700 plus computers, right? Uh Yeah, that was a big job. So they were hiring temps to help out. And the guy that they hired to be sort of like the lead technician was not an IT person. So that was the first level of weirdness, right? (laughs) So I was like, okay, I don't even know how to talk to this guy because every time I say something, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. So, but he gave me this list of like five questions with answers, right? That was going to get me through the interview. So, (laughs) so I was like, okay, I guess I have to memorize these answers and then hopefully I get to talk to some IT people. And that's what happened. You know, they asked the five questions and then they said, okay, talk a little bit about your experience. And I was like, well, I'm not exactly sure what the, the gig is, so let's just have a chat because I've done migrations, I've done you know, tech refresh, and they're like, oh, we're doing this and that and this and that. And, this. and then these guys, of course, were IT people, and we're speaking in the same language, and then I got the job. <laughs> yeah, and it's so apparent when somebody doesn't speak that language because right. maybe they know a buzzword or two, and they're right. listening for that, right? but they can't follow up. Right, yes. So I get that, yeah. Each little gig has a language right wow okay so now you are armed with uh years of construction law experience so what was next well next i um i started my own firm oh good for you the entrepreneur comes back right right so there came a time i I loved working with small to mid-sized businesses i had a good construction law practice but i wanted to do some other things and i i started my my firm and uh um i wound up having a little bit a couple if nothing goes in a straight line so i wound up joining forces with three other guys when we ran a firm for a couple years i left um private practice for two years to become chief operating officer and general counsel of a software company oh interesting um hardware and software they were an ibm um uh, Microsoft Gold and IBM Premier Partner, and, and okay. they did uh, retail point of sale. Okay. So um, I did that for a couple years and um, then came back, started this firm in 2002. So we just had uh, Saturday, was our 15th anniversary. So, you know, we've been around for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> so what sort of... Uh, um niche were you going at when you started your current firm? I was, you know, 
I knew what I loved to do, which is really working with small to mid-sized businesses. Okay. What, what I accepted when I started my current firm was anything that would keep my mortgage company off. My of course. <laughs> uh, right. That's, you, you know, got to start taking whatever you can get in the beginning, right? Yeah, you absolutely yeah. have to. Sure. Um, you know, my, um, when I left the, the uh, software company, they were sold to a, an equity player in Florida. So I found myself looking for a job. And my wife, who's wonderful, you know, she's a speech pathologist. She was working full time. And, and she said, look, take your time. Don't take anything that you don't like. Just take your time. So I was looking around for something. And I, I had gotten offers, but I didn't find anything that I really loved. And, and anyway, and meanwhile, my old clients were calling. And they say, hey, I know you're not practicing law right now, but can you do this? Can you do that? So I remember one time my wife came down, uh, downstairs in the basement, we had a little office and I was, that's where like resume central was where I was really looking for a okay, job. Right. And she said to me, well, you can, you can do what you have, what, what you want, whatever you want to do. We're okay. But, um, you know, you haven't, it's been about four months. You haven't found anything that you really like. And you've got people calling on the phone asking if they could pay you several hundred dollars an hour. So I'm just saying, you know. Maybe you it's time. Wanna, maybe it's time. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, to hang the shingle so. out, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, so I, I got a call. One of those calls was from this guy that said, I know you're not practicing law, but I have, he was an accountant. He says, I have a client that wants to buy this company, a division of this company out of bankruptcy in Chicago. And I told him that you were the guy that knew how to do that because you wrote a book on it. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I said, okay. Yeah, probably. If you've but, written a book about it, you become an assumed expert. Yes, but I, I had written a book, and the book was called The Art of Getting Paid. But that book, and it was my only book, mm. that book was see in in Maryland as as well as forty five states around the country, a company can represent itself without a lawyer in a small claim. In okay. Maryland, it's five thousand dollars or less. So my book was just designed to teach people how they don't need to hire a lawyer to do these small claims. So anyway, so this accountant says, "I told him you wrote a book on it, so he wants to meet with you." So I go to meet with this guy, and I really liked the president of the company, and he asked me, you know. Can, can we hire you to do this? And I said to him, you, you know I don't have an office ready. And he goes, yeah, I know that. And, he said, and I said, uh, you know, I don't even have a business card to give you. And he goes, yeah, I know that. But, uh, you know, Howard says you're okay, so I want to hire you to do it. I said, all right. So <laughs> I did that, and I figured I might as well start my firm because it was a larger thing. And at one point I sat down with Howard, the accountant, and I said, you know, i got to thank you for referring me to these guys, but uh, you never read my book, did you? And he goes, no, why? No reason. No reason. <laughs> but it just had nothing to do with this. No, I get it. Yeah, uh, no, I get you know, it. Because if you would have read the book, it, it would have told you not to hire a lawyer. <laughs> Correct. You, no, well, more than that, if you had read the book, you would have never made the call to me. It's like, this has nothing to do with what my, what my client needs. Interesting. See, so and maybe a book cover is all you really need. <laughs> maybe a book cover <laughs> with George Washington and Green. Maybe the, oh, it's about money. Okay. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, nobody reads anymore anyway, right? No, no. It's just so. Um, so if you're, if you are writing a book, don't fret about 
too much about all the, the little nitnoy mistakes and details because nobody's reading them anyway. <laughs> just, just, have a great cover. just have a really good cover. Yeah. <laughs> well, you need to have enough so people actually download it on Amazon and can flip through it and see words. Yes. Uh, that would be an interesting experiment right there. <laughs> well, you, know, you know, there was an experiment that was not an experiment, but it was done by this marketing guy. Um, and he he created this book called, and I'm going to get the details wrong, but the gist is correct. Yeah. He created this book called My Left Thumb. And all it was was pictures of his left thumb. Wow. And he created a launch team so that people would download and people would write reviews or whatever they would so do. So he paid and, people to do social proof. Well, he didn't even pay them. It was just oh. his, his friends, friends. And, okay. and whatnot. But he created, he when you upload onto Amazon, you can choose a niche. So if your niche is mystery or horror, right. then you've got a billion different competitors, including Stephen King. Right, right. But if your niche is suitably obscure, because they have some really obscure ones, <laughs> and if you sell three in this niche, you can get that banner of Amazon bestseller. <laughs> And so he put my left thumb into this niche that nobody ever writes in. Yeah. And so he had like, I think his mom and maybe his business partner or somebody download the book and he got it to be an Amazon bestseller. Wow. Yeah. That's a fun experiment. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> That's hacking a system in a really fun and interesting way. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So now you are focused mostly on business law, right? Absolutely. Yes. And you're helping small to medium sized businesses do all sorts of things. Let's talk about your latest book because it's got a really interesting title. I, I didn't do this on purpose, really. <laughs> you steered me towards the idea of an older book, but I wanted to talk about this anyway, because I've heard fire aim ready before. Um, but I want to hear what, what your take is on it, because that's the name of your book, right? Fire, right. aim, dot, 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 ready, management. Fire, aim, ready. Right. Fire, um, so aim, the, ready. The reason is, as you, as you know, you most people have heard and, and say, ready, aim, fire. That's Correct. what you should do. Ready, right. aim, fire. Fire is the end of the process. And so I, I realized that in so much of the advice that I give to um, to my clients, that they they fail to start with the end in mind. So to give you an example, when they come to me and they say, can you help me with this contract? And I'll say, okay, before I look at all the legal terms and, and we discuss the get down in the weeds a little bit, let's talk about the answer to two questions. One question would be, if you signed this contract, what would make you call me in six months asking me to get you the hell out of this contract? What's the nightmare scenario? You know, it, mm, it might right. be, well, I didn't get paid, but it might also be that if it's an employment contract, this guy didn't bring in the business he said he would, or he comes in at 10 and leaves at 2 and takes a two-hour lunch, or he, whatever it is. Right. You know, but they can, if they think about it, they can tell you a story of all the things that would make them want to run screaming for the hills. Okay. Okay. And the second question uh, to which I want an answer is, all right, if you sign this contract, what would make you look back on signing the contract as the best decision you made in your professional life? What would hit it out of the park? Not just, well, you got paid what you were owed, 
but maybe it's referrals. Maybe it's you could have it up on your website as this. Maybe it's social media proof. Maybe it's marketing something. Whatever it happens to be, maybe it's 10 more projects like this. Um, now that we know the answer to that, now we can go craft the contract so that we avoid the pitfalls of your worst scenarios and we make sure the other side is well aware of what you consider your best case scenarios and then you get down in the weeds so that's why you start with the end in mind um real quick i'll give you another example sure if, no, it's if a good idea. Hiring, yeah I, and and i found it so productive if you're hiring somebody and hiring is fun right it's you know they want the job you have a job that needs done needs fulfillment so you um it's it's a great conversation but if you're if you're going to fire somebody if it's if it's monday and i know tuesday morning i have to come into the office and fire somebody my stomach is churning and i know it's going to be an unpleasant conversation i better have my ducks in a row because that person might say to me you know why why are you i thought it was going well why why right right and I better be able to say, well, because you lost the McCormick account, because your customer satisfaction rating is below 92%, because you're over budget, because you're behind schedule, whatever it is. Right. Now, let's put the end of that process first. Let's say that before you, when you're hiring somebody, before you extend your hand across the table to welcome them aboard, you look them in the eye and you say, here's why I'm going to fire you. And you don't have to make it that blunt, but this is basically what you say. I'm going to fire you if you lose the McCormick account, if your cuss sat rating is below 92%, if you're right. over budget, if you're behind schedule. All right. It's not warm and fuzzy, but nobody in that conversation, nobody leaves that conversation unclear as to what the expectations are. Right. No, that's a good and, idea. All right. And so at the end of the process, if you have to fire somebody, you're like, hey, this can't come out of the blue. This can't shock you because you lost the McCormick account and you're over budget behind schedule. <laughs> so I didn't lose the McCormick account. I lost some other account. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but, but what it requires is advanced thought. You know, Before you enter into a contract, before you enter into a partnership, before you hire people, you think, all right, what are the possible outcomes? What do I want to avoid and what do I want to encourage? And then you go back and make that not only probable, but inevitable. Mm. And that's why it's fire, aim, ready. And the first one, which is fire, aim, ready, management, it's a, a four ebook series. The first one, fire, aim, ready, management, I put on Amazon and it's free. Oh, you nice. just look it up on Amazon. Oh, cool. I like it. You know, and it's, uh, I think the whole idea of fire, fire for effect helps you aim. <laughs> Does. That's how the Navy does it, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Shock and, it off. Yeah, and uh, artillery. I mean, you know, it's like okay, we're 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 gonna take a, a rough estimate. We're gonna do a little bit of down and dirty aiming, and then shoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then and then dial in. You know, see artillery and horseshoes. Those are things where close is good enough. Right. That's true. That's true. And hand grenades. And hand grenades. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it's nice. But to not talk in to surgery. It. It's not, no, no. And not in, uh, in business contracts. Right. <laughs> well, Hey, this has been a blast. You are Elliot Wagenheim. Am I saying your name right? Wagenheim. Yeah. Wagenheim. And you are at Wagenheim.com and, uh, and you're all about the business law 
And uh, in your new book is Fire Aim Ready, and that's uh, coming out. Oh, it's already on Amazon. It's that on one's Amazon. about management, and you can get it for free. Yes, you can. This has been awesome, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, me too. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V-double-E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. Vroom Vroom Veer.